The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Nice to see everybody. So this is week seven of our Buddhist studies class on the refuges, on refuge and understanding refuge. And in particular, now, especially at the last part of the course, looking at the traditional Buddhist formulation of this, taking refuge in Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha. Tonight we reflected on taking refuge in Sangha. But it's just good to understand how these three work together, right? The Buddha as the sort of ultimate subject, Dhamma as the object, the way it is, and Sangha as the expression, as the manifestation. Right. So we think of Sangha, you know, a lot as spiritual community. We often think of the primary symbol of Sangha as a monastic, a monk or a nun. But that symbol, as powerful as it can be to some of us, it's really a pointer to basically a practice, right? A practice of recognizing what that image of a monk or a nun represents to the heart. It represents somebody who's committed to What's good? Wisdom and compassion. Some of you know one of the well-known teachings in the tradition is the story, legend, you know, who knows how accurate it is as an actual event in the Buddha's life, but it's a good teaching story at least, where as a young man, when he was still married with his newborn child and having lived, sort of on purpose, evidently, according to the legend. His father didn't let him see too much of the world because he was afraid he would see how messy it all is and how, you know, living to be a great prince or king or head of the clan, like, why would I do that when it all gets taken away anyway, right? So the father didn't want him to be too reflective, too philosophical, about things, so he kept him isolated, but as the story goes, his friend, the, a charioteer, took him around the cities or the area, and he saw some things. He saw an older person, a sick person, a dead person, and then the fourth day he was taking a trip, he saw a monk or an ascetic, somebody who had thought, you know, I think what I'm going to do with this life is I'm going to put aside, raising a family, trying to become wealthy, trying to have a lot of power, and I'm going to live my life instead to be reflective and try to understand what the heck's going on, (laughs) what it is to be a human being, and how do you become happy? Where's real happiness, right? So a spiritual seeker, full-time spiritual seeker, he saw that. And the combination of seeing those four things is, as the story goes, what set the Buddha on his path. Like, why would I cultivate dependence on things as nice as they are in a temporary way when I know they're going to go away? 
Why seek things that I know are not permanent? Maybe I should use this life to seek what is not going to come and go, a freedom that doesn't come and go. So he set off. And there's another story from the tradition too that's sort of a similar, where Ashoka, this, this is several hundred years after the time of the Buddha, and this great king, great in the sense of fearsome and had conquered a lot of land and just after a particularly bloody battle, you know, having won the battle, having gained more land for his vast empire, most of northern India, maybe all of northern India, um, surveying the battlefield, he saw a monk walking across it. And it just was just sort of the right image the right moment and he saw another possibility you know as opposed to just following that part of his mind that wanted more power that wanted more 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 he was just struck by this possibility of renunciation as a way to happiness simplicity as a way to happiness kindness as a way you know what that monk represented to his mind what it stood for in his mind. So it doesn't mean that that's going to work for you as an outward symbol of sangha, uh, a monk, a nun. It does for me, even as a kid growing up as a Catholic and you know having a pretty good experience with the Catholic nuns and priests in my life. And they sort of seemed, not perfect, but... Some of them, <laughs> you know, I had a lot of respect for them. They seemed relatively happy, you know, and good people. And uh, the Buddhist monastics that I've come across too, I mean, I really see for both lay people, but I see people who decide to do the practice as sort of full-time monastics and then do it for a while. I see the kind of effect it can have. I've seen some people who've been monks for many decades or even nuns for several decades. And, you know, you never know, like, or am I projecting something? or, But just that sense, oh, yeah. Whatever this is that they're doing, it seems to work in the sense of, I want what they have. My heart is seeking what they seem to be finding in their practice, in their life. But of course, the outward symbol is only that, right? It points us to an inner process. So this is the sort of inner part. For each of these refuges, you know, there are external symbols that help us remember to keep the practice alive. So if that's a refuge, and it's going to be a real refuge, it has to be here. So how do we take that translation, whether we're inspired by a statue or a monk or you know, whatever symbolizes Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha, and now tonight talking about Sangha, whatever represents Sangha, then how does that translate to an internal process? So that's what I tried to do with the guided meditation tonight. And just continue that this week if you like. Because 
you know, Sangha as a manifestation of awakening, a manifestation of somebody who's deeply wise, deeply peaceful and kind, then that person, that manifestation or expression is going to be the acting out of some kind of intention. Well, what are those intentions that are deeply trustworthy and beautiful and skillful? Well, I mean, you might come up with a slightly different list, but probably the list the Buddha came up with will work for you. Like you can, whatever wholesome manifestation you've seen yourself express or you've seen somebody else express that you just immediately felt like you could trust, (coughs) the wholesomeness of it, the goodness of it, you could probably fit it in that category of the intention of renunciation, which is just the same as the intention of generosity, the intention of kindness, and the intention of compassion or not harming. Right? So this sort of movement into life, it sort of the cause for speech, the cause for action, the cause for restraint, coming out of these three wholesome intentions. And to really see that, like to work on that as a refuge of Sangha. When we say, I take refuge in Sangha, it really means in a more specific way, I really touch the, trust these three intentions. Whether they're moving through me in this moment or they're moving through another person, when I see the authentic movement of kindness in myself or another, I see something that's trustworthy, something that's beautiful, something that's safe, something that I want to rest in, be devoted to, live out of. Same with compassion, same with this capacity to let go, to renounce, to be simple, to keep it simple, to be generous, to not hold on, not to need to hold on. Right? Everything's going away anyway. Why not notice how good it feels to let go? I notice that with my savings, you know, just I mentioned sometimes, sometimes in a joking way, but I, just because for a long time, when and I didn't really have <coughs> much money, but you know, now I'm sort of middle class and I'm actively saving for retirement, and it just feels weird, you know, to have money in the bank and to just like what, how much is too much, and there's a lot of suffering out there, there's a lot of need, you know, and. You can't figure it out. I don't know about you. Well, maybe you can figure it out. I don't think you can figure it out. right? But we have to live with that tension. Like, yeah, it makes sense to save for retirement. And it makes sense. It feels good to be generous. Right? And so how to see both, like taking care of ourselves as an act of generosity, an act of renunciation. I'll take this. I'll put it here so that I can take care of myself. I'll take this. I'll put it there so these people can get what they need to be safe or to have food or to you know be able to do be protected but to really see that 
can we live our life with only those three intentions? And when we see somebody, basically their life is the expression of those three intentions or the moments when our life is the expression of those three intentions, you know, we don't see dysfunction. We don't see somebody kind of making a mess out of their life. We see something really beautiful. And if it does look dysfunctional, it's probably not real generosity, real compassion and kindness. Those intentions working. They come out of wisdom. This is the, these three intentions are the active expression of wisdom, right? And then they express themselves, they blossom as wise speech, wise livelihood, wise action, right? This section of the Eightfold Path, the sort of outer section of the Eightfold Path, where who we are in the world is a thing of beauty. So Sangha is really this, this outward expression of beauty. It's interesting in, you know, in the Buddhist tradition over the centuries how they've always had to talk about this outer expression, which is, you know, <clears throat> um, challenges us because so much of the teachings is about doing this inner work of purifying the mind, purifying the heart, purifying one's understanding. So like... Uh, some of you know in the, in the Chan, I think it, in Chinese Buddhism, there was a movement of Chan that eventually, as it went further um, away into Japan, became Zen. And they have these ox herding pictures, maybe you've seen, they're kind of popular. I forget now if it's a 12 or anybody remember? 12 or 13 pictures. And they just sort of describe the path. And uh, it's all in terms of somebody finding the ox that's somewhere in the woods. But eventually, the seeker finds the ox, you know, wakes up. And they ride the ox back into town, right? That's the last picture, right? Like, what does this awakening look like in relationship? What does its expression look like in the real world? of relationship. Well, it looks like renunciation, the the activation of renunciation or the sort of bringing out into the world the intention of renunciation, kindness, and compassion. Whatever that might look like in each of our or any person's particular circumstances. And even though I don't understand much of the specifics of that whole movement in northern India, um, that later got called Tantra. But part of what I think that's about too is this integration, like not, uh, because so much of the practice is seeing that experience is empty of self, empty of a permanent fixed self. But then, and uh, some of you who've been coming to the weekly practice groups have heard me uh, mention this really provocative quote by John Wellwood, this Buddhist psychologist and author, where he says that you know the path isn't so much, this is a rough paraphrase, the path isn't so much about 
a human being figuring out how to be a Buddha, but more how a Buddha needs to wake up as a human being, an embodied human being with relationships, right? So that's more interesting, like, okay, so it's just nature happening here, and this nature that's happening here is empty of any permanent separate self. So then how does that nature, that Buddha nature, let's call it, how does it then show up in this body as a being, a sexual being, a being that has instinct to survive, both psychologically, like not being put down, not wanting to be put down, but physically wanting to survive as well. Right? What is that not-self, that emptiness of a separate being, look like when it's in this embodied state, in this culture, at this time? See, that's a very, for me at least, a very interesting reflection. And I think it has everything to do with these movements that have happened throughout the history of Buddhism, always realizing that actually the path isn't about transcendence, get me the heck out of here, life is messy, being a human being is messy, having sexual impulses is messy, caring about power is messy, you know, having to get enough food and shelter when other people want food and shelter is messy. Get me out of here. Right, so that's the whole transcendence instinct in spiritual traditions, religious traditions. And Buddhism has tried, as other traditions have too. Like, no, no, we got to, whatever it is we're after, you know, as a, when we have some kind of spiritual instinct, it has to be, it has to have this expression, this manifestation in this limited, messy, world of an aging body, of society, culture, power, sex, difference, right? Okay, what does that freedom look like? Well, it looks like the activity of renunciation, the activity of kindness, and the activity of compassion. Those activities don't require a somebody doing something, right? Another of these famous expressions, uh, again in the Zen tradition in China, Chan Buddhism, was one of the patriarchs, one of the head, you know, was asked appropriately by one of his students, you know, please sum up the Buddhist teachings, the essence of the Buddhist teachings his whole life long. Like what, wh- what point was the Buddha trying to get across? And his answer was an appropriate response. Right? That's the essence. Like how can my life, my, the activity of my life, be an appropriate response? You can't imitate it. It's like we can't have a, a, a road map that's, okay, Mark, this is how you do your appropriate response, Right? It has to be born in the moment, moment by moment. can't be an imitation or something that's fixed or something that's defined. It's something that has to arise moment by moment by moment, which can only be then, we don't know what we're going to do, 
but we, in a way, we have an idea or a refuge, like, so our life energy, like we're alive, we've got this life energy to do, to be, to connect, and we're going to train the mind through observation of what's actually beautiful and wholesome, what's actually a refuge and what's not a refuge, we're going to train the heart to always channel its life energy through these intentions of renunciation, compassion, and kindness. Because we have to do something with this life, right? This life energy, this being alive at this time and these relationships and with these circumstances. What are we going to do with this life energy? What can we do with this life energy that doesn't end up reinforcing that sense of separation and then out of that sense of separation comes the unwholesome roots of greed, anger, and delusion and all the tightness and all the reverberations of suffering, not only our own suffering, but planting seeds for other people to suffer because of our greed, because of our hate, because of our distractedness and denial, we just keep stepping on each other's toes and reinforcing injustice and, and suffering. I think I read in this group, um, but I forget now, but a quote I uh, really like from Payment Children. Oh yeah, I think it was in this group. I'm not sure what particular refuge, but you know, she was talking about the refuges and remember that article, I think I even sent it to you now that I remember, not holding back. That's a really good definition of sangha, right? The reason we don't hold back, though, is because we've learned to really trust these intentions, like to recognize, oh yeah, I don't know what to do in this moment. I don't know what is the right thing to say to this person or do with this person, or not do with this person. But I'm not going to hold back because I trust the kindness. And even if out of that intention to be kind, or to be compassionate, or to let go, to be simple, to be content, to be generous, even if I end up doing something that later I see isn't helping, right? that's okay. Because I'll just immediately see and feel that with those intentions, right? Because we care, we keep tracking our experience. We're not under the assumption that our action is correct or skillful. We're under the assumption that the intention is skillful. So because the intention to be kind and compassionate and simple to renounce, sort of needing to store up things for me and mine, to be mine, then we're always watching the action to see if it's in line with the intention. So as soon as it appears to be deviating from the intention to be kind and compassionate, to be simple and content, well then we realize, okay, honey, this isn't the way. So it really if we stick to the intention and not to the, like, what should I say, the actual expression. And that's 
feel scary because we, we want to know what to say and what to do and what not to do. Just tell me what's right, what's wrong. You know, it's like we want the commandments. Don't do this. You can do that, but don't do that. But instead, it's like we take refuge in these beautiful intentions, these beautiful expressions. And, you know, then the, the actual expression of Sangha is like infinite. Like what kindness looks like is going to be specific to each person in each moment. What compassion looks like, what renunciation looks like. So we have to really know what renunciation is as an intention instead of what it looks like. So even if you remember a moment when you were really generous and it felt really natural and easy and beautiful and light and authentic, it doesn't help so much to remember what you did, but rather when you remember what you did, you kind of go back, well, what did that feel like? What was the feeling of that intention? So we're really getting back to how free, how right, how beautiful that felt as a movement in the mind and heart more than like what I did. Because then we just sort of want to replicate. But maybe it was beautiful in that moment, but it may be really unskillful or not appropriate or just a little off in another moment. Because in a way we're doing it not out of those wholesome intentions, but because there's a somebody who wants to be skillful. But that's not the intention of renunciation. That's one of the meanings of renunciation. Like, honey, put down that sense of self, that sense of being apart or being separate or somebody who needs to be good. Because that's not good. Being a somebody who needs to be good isn't good, isn't beautiful, isn't a refuge. It's neurotic. What's neurotic is that actual movement of letting go, of putting down, of being content of not needing to hold on like a tree this time of year that doesn't feel the need to hold on to the leaves. They just go eventually, right? We had like, oh yeah, when it's appropriate, the heart lets go. It isn't neurotically, doesn't have a story about needing to hold on. It's so neat when we, when you feel yourself giving, you know, and it was just like just the right thing in the right time and there might have been some neurotic hesitation, like, am, do I really, am I really going to do this? Am I really going to give this? But it's like, it's like everything around it is yes, 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 yes. It just feels so right to give the time, to give it away, to do, you know, to be simple, to be content, to not pick up the need to do something. No, I'm content. I don't need to turn the radio on or the... You know, just to see that as a a quality of contentment, of renunciation, of generosity. You know, and the same with the others. We need to really get a sense of them as an inner movement. And all the sort of actual expressions can sort of be a symbol for that inner quality of the heart in that moment. Otherwise, we tend to hold on to the action, you know, and we keep doing the same thing. It felt so good on Thanksgiving when I went to the food shop and served the meal. You know, and then it becomes this big edifice in your family's life. This is what we do on Thanksgiving. (laughs) You know, we go and we get the food, you know, and it's going to be good. (laughs) It's going to feel good. 
And it's like, it's amazing how much suffering we cause in these ways. When we, you know, ritualize, we get stuck with the ritual of being good, the outward expression of being good, instead of understanding what sangha is, the sort of expression of what's good, is really that inner quality of the heart. What did the heart feel like, look like? It was interesting after, you know, pretty soon after the Buddha started teaching, uh, some scholars, you know, see this like in the first several months of him teaching, there were some people who had the same deep insight as the Buddha, same awakening as the Buddha at that point. And so the Buddha sent them off with this phrase. He said, go forth, go out for the good of the many, for the welfare of the many, out of compassion for the world, for the benefit, for the welfare for the happiness of all beings. And he told these practitioners, these students of his, like, don't walk on the same roads, you know. Just go, (laughs) but don't follow each other. You know, go different places, because you'll bump into people, and they're going to wonder, right? Because they'll be walking, talking symbols of sangha, right? The natural, effortless, organic expression of renunciation, kindness, and compassion. And they'll say to you in some fashion, what's going on? What are you doing? How'd you get this way? <laughs> you know, I want what you want. You know? And then you'll teach. You know? You'll say, well, you might start, you might want to just follow your breath, or you may want to pay attention to the present moment, or you might want to notice how much joy there is in renunciation and gen- generosity. Like you could feed me, for example, and notice how how good that feels, right? To support somebody living this way, maybe that feels really good for you. Check it out, right? And they started to teach, and there's this whole, you know, part of the ritual, part of the form, is this symbiotic relationship between people. I mean, ideally, fully awake people, but you know, mostly just people beginning doing the practice as best they can, whether they're nuns or monks or lay people, you know, the odds of somebody being fully awake, at least (laughs) from my own perceptions, as limited as they might be, seems low. But we see a lot of people on the way or interested, right? And we can be inspired. Like when you show up in the morning and you say, oh my God, there are 15 people sitting in the morning or something like that. And just to be inspired people doing the best they can or people signing up on retreats. Tomorrow or Wednesday, Gabe Keller-Flores, one of our teachers and staff people here at the center, is coming back from his six-week retreat. And Mari Wittenborough and uh, Jonah Owens, who's off in our Buddhist study, she's on the full three-month retreat. And Rob Reed, as I mentioned last week, and Dave Redelman left and are going to be starting probably tomorrow, Wednesday. I forget when the first day of the second half of the three-month retreat is. But these people are our little symbols, you know. Um, or anybody, you walk in and you see somebody looking somewhat serene, or you see somebody picking up trash that they didn't sh- throw on the ground, or showing up to clean the center, or your partner doing something just naturally, organically that's, beautiful and generous and simple and they're not looking for acknowledgement. But it just, it p- 
points out something deep in our heart that we call this refuge of Sangha. Oh, there's a way. And this way expresses itself in ways that are simple and beautiful in the world. And we can notice it. And you can notice it even in non-human beings. I mean, in some ways it's easier, like how beautiful a flower is, or clouds, or a breeze, or I sat in the sun today. It was so nice for 10 minutes, 15 minutes, just to feel the sun on the skin. Little things. Just to appreciate that, the generosity of it. There's a poem that sometimes I read that talks about the line is something like, have you ever noticed how generous a window is? You know, that's like opening up that outside space. It's really a beautiful thing. Because remember, the idea, like what makes it beautiful isn't the person that's doing it. The idea of the person, the idea of the nun or the monk or the practitioner we don't want to get stuck because then we think, oh, I want to be that kind of person. It can be, but we want to trace the outer expression of beauty. You see some beautiful clouds or you see somebody who just seems happy, a little child playing, and just a lot of freedom and ease and joy that they're expressing in those moments. You want to trace it back to these intentions that are trustworthy, that are that the outer form of the Sangha, that refuge of Sangha, it's really the movement, like nature moves as these intentions of kindness, the intention of compassion, the intention of letting go, of not being sticky. Letting go means not being sticky, not being stingy, right? Doesn't mean you don't have anything, it just means you're not holding it. So you, you know, I, and I do this. I mean, even in a mundane way, like with, I mentioned earlier, the savings now that I have this time of my life, I just tell myself, it's like, I'm not going to waste this money. I'm going to take care of living beings. I may be one of those living beings. I'm not going to waste it. And I'm not going to hold it, right? So if the stock market go- goes down, you know, I'm just sort of in these, broad funds, whatever, whole market funds, you know, okay. Same, I mentioned sometimes with taxes, you know, okay, now I'm going to pay taxes, okay. And like to give that away generously, oh, a new mattress costs this much, okay. I'm happy. I mean, I really work on that. Our vacuum cleaner that we've had for 25 years uh, just died. And... uh, you know, it's like I'm going to take it into the repair shop. I know it's going to be expensive. You know, maybe we'll have to buy a new one. But it's like I'm excited. I mean, partly because I have money. I can actually afford to fix it or buy another vacuum cleaner. But I, I really have the attitude of like giving that away. Like, yeah, it wasn't mine anyway. This is, it was there in order to be able to do something like this, to fix a vacuum cleaner, to buy another vacuum cleaner, to do these things, to you know, do retirement, even to do sort of so-called, you know, fun things, like to go on a vacation or to see a movie or to whatever it is. But to really have that sense of that's what it's for, not to hold, not to cling to, but to move, 
that movement of letting go, giving it away, whether it's for another person or for yourself or for so, sort of a so-called noble cause. So part of these, um, you know, as we take this practice home uh, in the next few days, is really thinking about how, you know, how it's going to work for you to keep Sangha in mind. And you might, like even today, and then next week, of course, we'll have small groups, and you can share this work of really getting skillful at noticing how these intentions express themselves around you and in you, like in your own life, in your own actions, your own moments of restraint, but then all around you. And like have a contest. Who can notice more moments of this refuge of Sangha in the next week? Where do we see it? Because I'm really good at noticing the hindrances expressed in other people. <laughs> you know, igno- oh, there's ignorance. You know, there's greed. There's aversion. There's delusion. There's... Right? We're pretty good at noticing that, but why aren't we good at noticing Sangha, the expression of these enlightened qualities, these enlightened intentions out in the world? What are we missing? And the thing is, it's like we have every incentive to keep this in mind. So, you know, this is the purpose of a statue or, you know, uh, Shannon one of our community members, a graphic artist, has made a beautiful poster. We're going to raise some money for um, this monastery, this Bakuni monastery out in California, Santa Rosa, right, right around the fires. And some of you remember Michelle Raymond, who was part of the Buddhist Studies group for many years before she moved out west to be a nun. So first she was an Anagarika, and then she became a novice nun. And then on December fourth, she's going to take full ordination as a bhikkhuni, a fully ordained Buddhist nun. And uh, Wynn and I are going to go out. I think Haya is going to go out for that too. Anybody can go, I think. And uh, we'll bring some donations. So we're making a poster. And just to uh, Shannon, who made the poster, has some photographs of the nuns at her monastery, and got some beautiful place in town and a beautiful country place there. And it just, you know, makes me happy when I s- think of Sister Nianika, that's her monastic name, out there, you know, and the, it just makes me happy that there's a place for somebody with her interests and devotion to the practice to go and to be able to do this full time. And she came and visited about a year and a half after starting her monastic training. And she just, I mean, because I knew her really well. She was an important leader here. I re- And she was already changing a lot just in her practice here. But boy, just seeing how much happier she seemed, lighter she seemed, nimble her mind seemed, just playful. All the trustworthy qualities that we see in people. And this, it just knowing that that memory is just, a trigger for the possibility of sangha right here in my heart. Instead, I could like lament, oh, too bad I couldn't have been a monk, you know? Too bad I can't be enlightened or whatever. And we could just dig the hole deeper. Or we can use the symbols appropriately, 
like, it's almost like a sympathetic vibration or resonance. Like we, the memory or the image or the direct experience of seeing somebody in a good place. And then like, if they can do it, I can do it. Some of you might remember I read the sutta, I forget what class it was for, might have been this one even, about the mother cow lowing, you know, making that sound. She crosses over the river, but the calves don't want to cross over. And the mother, you know, bellows out this sort of, oh, honey, you can do it. You can do it. And you got to do it, (laughs) right? You got to go over to this side of the river. Just do your best. And we can, (coughs) in fact, it's important. This is the refuge in Sangha is really about this, is basically learning to hear that call of our wise, kind, enlightened friends. Also from the past, you know, even as they exist as ideas in our mind, like the Buddha, right? He exists as an idea in our mind, presumably. I mean, maybe you have some actual connection, but I don't, I don't see that as belittling it to say that our wise, enlightened ancestors, the women and men, the practitioners before us, that they exist in our mind because our mind is everything. And I think, you know, even though Buddhism is very pragmatic, I think it's important to keep open to the beneficent forces that guide us along the way. I don't think you have to kind of tell yourself stories, but I think it's wrong to close your mind that these beneficent forces, close your mind and have this strong fixed idea that these beneficent forces don't exist. I think it's really not appropriate to be certain about that because that's not our experience. When you really look at our experience, we feel like we're receiving, we feel protected, we feel guided. And we don't have to determine whether that's internal or external, right? That's just a story we're telling ourselves anyway. Oh, that's my guardian angel out there, and I'm this guy here. Or no, no, that was my own power of intention or my own. No, it's just all we know is it's good and trustworthy. And this is also Sangha. And, you know, religious traditions, including the Buddhist tradition, and the more ornate, you know, rifts of Buddhism as the centuries went along and Buddhism went to these other cultures. And in some places it gets really ornate where they have pantheon, you know, great spectrums of expressions of goodness and power and wisdom and fierceness, all the ways that these three intentions can express themselves in a human mind, right? And they artistically and symbolically and maybe even psychically have existence, these forces, right? But we need those ways to remember because otherwise we start having this strong fixed idea that I'm a miserable human being with a lot of bad habit energy, stuck in a life with a lot of ignorant people. And it makes sense to get Netflix and HBO and 
you know, or whatever it is to fill the space of our life to just make it to the end, right? And even, you know, when we make it to the end, we want to, you know, we, we want things to kind of take care of that too. As if the purpose of life is to make it to the end without getting burnt too much. And so this, these symbols of Sangha and the practice of Sangha and then the realization of Sangha, you know, the direct experiencing of something good being expressed, manifesting in our life, this is the counterweight to that tendency we have. And maybe even more these days, I mean, I'm not sure. We don't, I, I don't know if any of us know enough about history to say conclusively that it's much worse now. One of the interesting things about history is how many times throughout history people have said, it's really bad now. <laughs> so much worse now than it's ever been. You know, that's kind of a constant when you look at reports through history. Everyone thinks it like, couldn't get worse. This is the worst. I always, I mean, just in a simple way, I always remind myself, you know, in the 50s there was McCarthy. You know? So, okay. <laughs> I'm not sure. I, I saw it in the news. I didn't read the story, but evidently Tom Hanks in some acceptance speech for some award said, you know, if you're concerned about the way things are, read history. I don't know if he meant this. Anybody read the fuller description of that, what he was talking about? But I think it's important to bring perspective. And part of reading history is to see the beautiful things that people do in really difficult circumstances. They're able to find some energy and they find the energy, the the life energy is there anyway. It's just that when we have these heavy stories, it gets really repressed. But when we have these channels of renunciation, kindness, compassion, our life can really move. Life energy can move. We feel alive. And we don't care that the world is a mess because we have a way of expressing our life that makes sense, that feels good, that's beautiful. Even if the whole world is kind of going down the drain, why not live our life in a full way through these intentions? 100%, like Pema Children said, not holding back. Even in the worst scenario, why hold back? Why not use all of our life energy through these beautiful channels of renunciation, simplicity, generosity, and kindness and compassion? So I'll leave it here. We'll have small groups next week. So moments of compassion, uh, moments rather of sangha, and just how talking in your small group, like how you could remember it, what images really resonated were juicy, and really help point to the possibility of that, like whatever could move in your heart in this moment, like what would be the expression of kindness or compassion or renunciation in this moment that would be beautiful. So uh, Steve, I think, has the mic. If you have a comment, just raise your hand, and we'll just take the last 12 minutes for conversation. So just an example of, of um, I think, renunciation and kindness and compassion that completely overwhelmed me. Maybe a little louder, John, too. Oh, okay. The, uh, 
an, an instance of renunciation, compassion, and kindness that completely overwhelmed me from another person. I'd been very sick, and I was out of work for a year, but while I was out of work, a colleague of mine got diagnosed with stage four pancreatic cancer. And so when I was coming back just to kind of get back in the flow a little bit, I wasn't working yet, she was coming back to help train the person because she was dying. And she was extremely thin, skin and bones. And I was in my office and she was passing in the hall and she saw me and she had this immediate huge smile she came in and she gave me this huge hug and said I'm so glad you're back I'm so glad you're better and this woman was dying and I just had this thought that I cannot say I'm sorry for what's happening I can't say anything I could only receive it it was so overwhelming and it's that that'll be one of the memories that I'll be jotting down yeah Thanks so much for sharing that, John. Who else would like to share questions or comments from your own practice around Sangha? Um, I had a question about, uh, I guess, uh, the expression of Sangha versus ill will. Um, I guess I actually have a situation in my life right now that's been sort of a, a source of distress for me with like sort of like toxic person moving into a community like and I have a lot of compassion for them and I didn't want to like be using wrong speech so for for a long time I just kind of like did nothing and let it run its course and now like there's some really like harmful like harmful things happening to a friend of mine and I'm having a hard time, like, I don't want to <laughs> sit by and wait until I'm enlightened to respond, but I also am, like, every time I think of it in my head, I'm very aware of the presence of ill will in in my reaction, and I, I neither want to do nothing, and I don't want to respond from a place of ill will, so just <laughs> yeah. do the best you can. <laughs> yeah, and wh- one thing, a couple of thoughts about that, because <clears throat> we can assume that non-action is safer or more skillful than action that includes mistake, you know, let alone action, of course, action that doesn't include any harm or mistake we know would be good. And the other thing is, the other point is to really flip it because, yeah, you could act out of ill will. And this is why it's really good to have the information about the wholesome intention. So you ask yourself, well, which of these intentions might be able to show up. Well, compassion might. Compassion can be quite fierce, quite powerful. So you can ask, well, what would, what might compassion, how might compassion express itself? What might it look like? And, you know, this is the great thing about imagining. We can imagine ourselves speaking from this place of compassion because we care about these people. And the person that may be would be hurt by our compassionate voice, but we don't know what that that person, what medicine is good for that person. They might need some strong medicine. They might need the pain of having somebody speak up. So you're really asking, like, could compassion move here? Could kindness, could generosity, or how would that look? And, And use your imagination, like, really step out of the box and, like, well, 
you know, as you kind of remember the situation and feeling the heart and just see like how intention could move, like the, the movement to act, to speak, to think, right? That's not ill will. There may be the impulse to act with ill will, but you just, you know, you keep putting that to side. How else can this life energy move that's trustworthy? And it might be tainted with ill will. Like it may be kind of compassionate, but kind of angry at that guy. But that's okay, right? Because you might not really be, you know, as you begin to act and speak, right, there's ways to acknowledge how the intention isn't perfect and to correct as you're going. Because the question is, is action more unskillful than non-action? We often avoid action because we're afraid of the mess, but we don't actually look at the mess of non-action and what that sets in motion and what it does to our own mind, let alone to the situation. Yeah, thanks, Andrew. Time for a couple more thoughts. couple examples, it'd be nice to hear, like John and others, just how you saw something beautiful that sticks in your mind. Yeah, John, please. Bob. Oh, Bob. Oh. <laughs> My son is John. Um, tiny story, but I was um, doing leaves this weekend and uh, pulled our van into the compost site and I was um, emptying and another guy pulled up like six inches away from me. Um, and I, I probably, I, I not, I probably gave him a look like, you know, what are you doing? Um, and he, he, yeah, Mary recognizes that look. Um, um, <laughs> and he got out and he said, oh, I'll move my van and, and not, it didn't feel forced or anything, but just natural. I said, no, just, you're fine. Um, and I don't know if I can get across how wonderful that felt selfishly because it was such an easier and more liberating and and felt like kind of free way to behave rather than being angry um but also having a sense of yeah this guy just pulling his he's in the same hurry i am to get his leaves out of his car um so it felt nice yeah and it's a nice ordinary example of renunciation right it's like the mind there is that about to like about to moment where I could dig in with this or I could renounce the need to make a, a deal out of this. Right? It's like that putting down. And maybe telling the story now makes me seem smug about it, but at the moment it didn't feel smug. It just yeah. felt like a nice, you know, appropriate yeah. thing to do. Yeah. Thanks, Bob. Not Other John. thoughts? John. <laughs> <laughs> People might not know the history. I've done this several times. <laughs> Wait till you get to be 59. <laughs> um, just thinking about a, a, a time in the last couple of months where it was just kind of a spontaneous action. There was really no forethought. It just kind of exploded out of me. I was at the cafeteria at work and checking out, and sometimes um, <coughs> I've been in the situation where it's just like I grabbed the wrong credit card that doesn't, that doesn't slide through, and so it's just like, oh, sorry, I'll come down. I'll come back down, and I'll pay... Uh, uh, pay later. Uh, this one afternoon, there was a guy that was in front of me, and he's like, "Oh my gosh, I forgot my 
money. And I just said, oh, I'll just pay for your lunch. And he kind of looked at me and I, I kind of was surprised myself that the words just kind of came out. <laughs> not that I, <laughs> no, but it surprised in the way that it just came out of my mouth, not even thinking about it. And when it came out, it's just like, oh yeah, that's the right thing to do. Um, so that was just, you know, when you, people are sharing expressions of something that came out and it's just like, it was effortless and it felt really nice. Yeah, thanks, Frank. Yeah, Greta and then Charlie. Um, so I was coming back from taking care of my mom last night and uh, a, a woman, I, I sat down next to two kids and a, a woman came and said, you know, would you trade seats with me? I said, you know, are these your kids? Of course I'll trade seats because I was clearly not attached to the seat. And then there was a woman two aisles down from me who was really distressed that her video thing wasn't working. I mean, you could just tell. She was so distressed about it. And, and I was reading. I know it's old-fashioned. <laughs> I was reading. I had no intention of using my video thing. And so when there, when there was space, I went up to her chair and said, is, is your video not working? She says, it's not working. I said, you know, she said, is yours not working too? I said, no. <laughs> Mine, mine works. I said, if you want to watch a video, I'll trade places with you. And you can just sit in my seat. And she said, no, that's okay. Why would you do that? And I said, I want you to be happy. <laughs> and then it was like, weird. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, okay. You know? <laughs> I went back in my seat and I, I just felt like, have I crossed a boundary? <laughs> it's true. No, it's, it's really true, isn't it? How suspicious people can be. Yeah. Uh, thanks, Greta. <laughs> Did you get any sleep last night? <laughs> Her mom's so in L.A. or <laughs> California. I want her to be happy. I felt bad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's true. I think Charlie, and then we'll end here with Charlie's comment. I just retired recently from Metro Transit, <clears throat> and I worked for uh, 32 years driving bus. Um, and I am just in awe of the people that I worked for, um, so since I've been gone, you know, I, I needed to quit because um, it was the street part was I was finally done with it, you know. Uh, so I was able to to work and serve uh, increasingly. It seemed like difficult clientele and leave with compassion. Really leave with my sense of compassion intact. But um, what what blows me away is. Um, I'm thinking about our community here, how we have a, a set of intentions that we operate around. And the management at Metro Transit, the company that I work with, have a really clear, defined set of intentions. And over the course of the years, I have to tell you that it was very, very rare that I saw people step outside of that. And the support was amazing, just amazing. And so I've been going around telling people, I'm, I'm just in love with these people, just because I know you know, th that what they deal with, um, first of all, the, the, the other drivers, I mean, I, I listen to what people, there's a lot of people that complain and don't appreciate, you know, um, 
what is there. And so they deal with that in the same way that, that I deal with, you know, uh, someone else that isn't appreciative of, of what maybe a gift I'm bringing. And anyways, I just, uh, one time I was sitting next to uh, Wynn, and I, I just said a commentary after the meditation was done. I said, boy, you must feel grateful for um, uh, what's, what has come about here. And she said, you mean by what has been set in motion? And it floored me. Um, and I, I, re- I left thinking about that for a couple weeks, right? Because, first of all, I, I th- had been thinking about this as a permanent refuge. I mean, it's like, I'm so grateful for this place. And, I've been, and it's not permanent. It's just in motion. But then also, you know, her awareness of that. So, anyways, I'm taking that back to Metro Transit. You know, that this is just something that's in motion. There's all these people that just are, have this beautiful harmony and this intention right now. And... I'm just grateful for that. That's sangha for me, too. Yeah, that's a nice note to end on. Let's just take a few seconds. Let go of the words. Grateful to be here together. Grateful for all of our benefactors and spiritual ancestors. May all this goodness continue. May it increase. May it never end. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.